The year was 2012, and the stage was the Olympics. A young runner knelt before the blocks. It was the semifinals in the men's 4x400 relay, and this person needed to deliver a really good performance so his team could go on to place in the finals. And so the announcer said, set. He rose, and at the crack of the gun, the runners were off. And he felt good. He was running. But as he looked out, he realized that the other runners were gaining on him. Well, that couldn't happen. So he reached down deep, found some more strength, pushed into his stride a bit more, and he found himself not bouncing off the track anymore, but pounding into the track. Somewhere around the 200-meter mark, he heard a snap. That couldn't be good. And he had a choice right there in that split second. Did he allow himself to just collapse on the track? People would be sympathetic. They'd understand there was an injury. Or did he reach down even deeper, find some more strength, and push through that pain to finish out his lap? He chose the latter giving the baton to his next teammate, and those teammates together tied the Bahamian team for exact same time. And the next day they went back and ran, and the Bahamian team took the gold, and the U.S. took silver, thanks to this person who was Monteo Mitchell. Stories like Mitchell's inspire us. Someone who has an injury and pushes through, finds some deeper grit, some, some deeper reservoir of energy, and says, I'm going to overcome the challenges and the pain. And yet, oftentimes when we look at our own life, the challenges, the hardships that are there seem mountainous to us. Picking up the toys for the 30th time that day after the kids, or dealing with the same relational issues that we've been dealing with for the past 10, 15 years, that gets hard and difficult. Going to the same job, answering the same emails, they can mount up and suddenly after a while we feel like we can despair of them all. And so life can, in fact, be difficult and it can wear on us. Scott Peck, in his book, The Road Less Traveled, said this in his opening page. He says, life is difficult. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. Most do not fully see this truth that life is difficult. Instead, they moan more or less incessantly, noisily or subtly, about the enormity of their problems, their burdens, and their difficulties, as if life were generally easy, as if life should be easy. They voice their belief noisily or subtly that their difficulties represent a unique kind of affliction that should not be and that has somehow been especially visited upon them. I know about this moaning because I have done my share." End quote. I too have done my share of moaning. When life seems to just continually deal small little problems after a while, you just want to complain, you just want to moan, uh, life hurts. And yet, in times like this, we have even more things that stack up against us. We've got issues dealing with the virus, we've got race issues, we've got an election year. And all these things can make life so difficult, so frustrating, that we just want to throw in the towel and say, I'm done. Not only do we have challenges, we also have a culture that I believe tells us we should expect life to be easy. One of the things that happens in the Western world when Christian theism is supplanted by deism is you have this view of God, that God is there to provide human flourishing, that God exists for us, that he's obligated to make sure life goes well for you and me. Then you also have the rise of utilitarian ethics, which says our goal or our ethical obligation to each other is to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain. We put those together, if God and other humans are about my flourishing, my pleasure, then it seems that I shouldn't have to suffer a whole lot. 
And so we come into this life expecting to not have life difficult. And yet, God has dealt us a difficult year, a year of changes, a year of loss, whether it's just routines, whether jobs, people. It's been a difficult year, and it can seem like we'd rather not keep going on. I read a headline not too long ago that says, Americans might be done with the coronavirus, but the coronavirus is not done with Americans. We have more to go. We have questions about this fall, what reopening will look like, what happens when colleges and schools go back in session. I don't know what lies ahead, and yet, I think in this time, we need more than ever perseverance to sustain us. And as Christians, you and I are uniquely primed to persevere during this time. See, our faith can inform how we live and give us the motivation, the strength to endure during this difficult season. We're going to look today at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and as we do, we're going to see three things. First of all, we're going to see that God uses fragile vessels like you and me to show His glory to others. Second, we're going to see how we can reframe our perspective of our momentary trials. Then finally, we're going to see that God's work is internal, transforming us into glorious images of Christ. And that work is happening now and tends to happen most frequently and most powerfully in times of suffering and trials and hardship. So turn with me to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. As you're turning there, I just want to give you some background to this letter. Paul is writing this letter because he's received reports that some people have come into Corinth saying, Paul's not really a genuine apostle. You shouldn't trust him. And they were pointing out things like, this Paul guy, he's had a pretty rough life. I mean, if he really was on God's side, don't you think he would have a better life? Paul, after all, had suffered a lot. And Paul's responding here saying why he should be trusted, why they should not throw him out, why they should still follow him as an apostle and as a leader. And what he does here in this, in this letter is very fascinating. He does not lead with a resume. He doesn't say, well, I've graduated from Jerusalem University or sat at the feet of Gamaliel. No, he says, I have suffered greatly for the sake of Christ. But in that suffering, and he's not trumpeting suffering as if this suddenly makes him the genuine tough guy. The suffering has revealed that God's power is pulsing through his veins, that God's power is motivating him and his ministry. So let's look here together at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. And Paul writes this. He says, but we have this treasure. And he's talking about treasure here. He's referring back to the new covenant ministry that God has entrusted to him and his, his colleagues. The new covenant was the covenant that would bring forgiveness of sins. It's also the one where the Spirit would come in and dwell God's people. And Paul's saying, I've been given this message, this great treasure, in jars of clay. And so... Looking at this, saying that we have this beautiful treasure, but a jar of clay is something very fragile. And he's talking here about the human body, the fragility with which you and I have been made. And so, oh, as I was saying, they're fragile. Our, our bodies can break. Now, Paul explains why God has chosen these jars of clay. Why did they use as fragile human beings? And he says, he has done so to show that this all-surpassing power Again, look at the way Paul's just describing this language. It's the all-surpassing power. It's not just strength. No, no, no. It's, it's the overcoming power. And that it's from God and not from us. So God chooses weak, fragile vessels like you and me. We are mortal human beings. We are susceptible to all kinds of things. The virus is one. Old age is another. Forgetfulness. Our capacities 
can easily be taken from us. And yet God uses those because he wants to show his power to the nations, to the world, that he is the God of the universe. A couple years ago, when I started going to the CCO Great Clay Getaway, I saw an instance of this. And while I'm talking about clay shooting, I should say we're going to have an NPC trap shoot at the last Saturday of September. If you'd like to sign up for that, we'd love to have you. It's for people of all ages, from 11 up. Male and female are welcome. Just contact Ian Miller to sign up. We'd love to have you join us. It'd be a safe experience, and if you're new to shooting, that's fine. We'll teach you how to do it, and we'd love to have you be a part of that. But I went to this Great Clay getaway, and there was an old former Pittsburgh Steeler who was there as, as one of the shooters. And to be honest, I don't know who he was. I just know I heard from others that he was a Pittsburgh Steeler. Well, he carried his battered old Remington shotgun. And something you should know about people in the shooting sports is as they progress in their skill level, they often increase the quality of their firearm. Usually they end up buying some kind of fancy European shotgun. They shoot a little bit better than most Remingtons. But this old Pittsburgh Steeler would carry this old battered Remington shotgun, and he would still be very effective, shoot very well. And I remember a couple of times he'd go out and he would shoot and he'd compete with the other people, and they'd turn away after he beat them and be like, well, I guess that's pretty good. And they'd say this. That's pretty good for an American gun. Now what they were saying in this is that your gun really isn't good, but the performance you just delivered shows that you have the skill level. Your skill was shining through bright and clear. And what Paul is saying here is that God's picking vessels like you and me that are fragile. And when he does something spectacular through them, when, for instance, someone like Paul can go across the Mediterranean world talking about Jesus Christ, surviving stoning, surviving all kinds of different things. What's shining through is not Paul's machismo. No, 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 no. What's shining through is God's power at work in him through the hope of the gospel. And Paul goes on here in a few verses to explain what's going on in his life. He says in verse 8, and he gives us really a picture into his heart. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, just feeling the, the forces pressing in, but not crushed perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We don't know the fullness of Paul's situation here. What we do know from Acts is that he had just been chased out of Ephesus with a riot. And you can imagine that does something to a person. And later in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about several things that have happened. He's been shipwrecked several different times. He's been stoned near to death. On several occasions, he's been lashed with a whip 39 times. Paul had been to the point of the end of his physical life. He'd endured a lot, and he'd felt this. He'd felt pressed on every side. He'd felt perplexed, not knowing what's next. He'd felt persecuted. He actually was physically persecuted for the faith, struck down. But in all those things, Paul realized he wasn't crushed. He wasn't in despair. He was not abandoned by God. So he had experienced all these difficult physical things and yet discovered in there that God had not abandoned him, that God was there, that God's power was at work in him. So often we fear loss of comfort, loss of being in control. And we fight to maintain control. We fight to stay in charge, make sure our wills are actualized and imposed upon the world. And Paul is realizing that in the midst of losing all of that control, God's still there. He discovers God's presence in a very, very powerful way. Then he continues on in verse 10 and lays out something else. He says this, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Paul had been to the brink of death. 
Jesus also called his followers to take up their cross. And that isn't just wearing a nice necklace with a cross on it. That means self-denial. That means being willing to lay aside our rights, our control, to follow Christ, to say, you are the one I follow, even to the point of death. And so Paul is saying, I have carried around in my body the death of Jesus, but why? And I'll point this out. Some people think that we should just embrace suffering for the sake of suffering. For Paul, we embrace suffering because there is something else to discover in the midst of it, and that's the goodness of Jesus Christ in the resurrection. Because he says this at the end of, the, end of verse 10, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. So in the midst of his own humanity, his mortality showing through as, as those lashes fall upon him, as the stones hit him, the life of Christ, he's realizing that resurrection life is there. It's a hope, a tangible hope for him. He continues in verse 11, For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So again, you have this death to life, being willing to go to the brink to experience the resurrection life. It says, so then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And so Paul, who had been experiencing all these sufferings, was realizing that the, the message of life was taking hold in the Corinthian church. They were latching on to the resurrection hope of Jesus Christ. And Paul would have us know that in the midst of our sufferings, and so whatever hardships we might be facing right now, the perplexities of life, of trying to figure out where do our kids go to school? Do, they, do we homeschool? Do we send them to cyber school? What do we do? In the midst of the upending that we're experiencing as a society, we need to come face to face with our fragility. And that's difficult because it means giving up the illusion that we're in control. The illusion that life is made to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain. And Paul would invite us into a world where we realize that Christ has called us to death, to giving up, to surrender, to offering our lives up to him saying, what would you have me do? So often we get stuck in what I call the churning phase. We're frustrated that our, our wills are thwarted, that the circumstances aren't what we want, that normal isn't here. And we stay on that feedback loop. We just churn and churn and churn. And what Paul would have us do is break through that layer. He'd have us break past that into the place where we discover that God is here. That he cares about us. That He sustains us. That His resurrection life flows through us. So today, if you're feeling perplexed, you're feeling overwhelmed, look to what Paul looked to. The fact that God's power is at work in us. So we've seen one thing that Paul has invited us to, and that is to realize that God's power can sustain us, especially when we're fragile vessels like clay pots. We'll see the second thing now, and that is this, that Paul calls us to reframe our perspectives around the cross and resurrection. He's already been going there. He'll do so more. Look at verse 13. He says this, It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, and he's talking to the Corinthians and himself, we also believe and therefore speak. So Paul's saying, look, I believe this message about Jesus. Now I have spoken that to you. Verse 14, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. 
Paul's inviting them to sit in the bigger story, to view what's going on in the world. And so these minor hardships that Paul is facing, they do not unsettle him because he knows a bigger story, and that is what God is doing through Jesus Christ in the world. Christ went through death. He was resurrected. And the promise is that he's coming back to resurrect all of those who trust in him. What Paul would have us do is frame whatever afflictions, whatever trials we have right now, he would have us frame all of those with that story to know that whatever is happening now is bookended by the bigger story of God. Now, I am nearsighted, and so I often have to wear some kind of corrective lenses, either glasses or often contacts. Without the glasses and contacts, I can read pretty closely. I can read from about here. But as things get further away, they become very, very fuzzy. And especially when you get across the room, it gets even fuzzier. I can make out people if I know who's coming, but generally that's a difficult thing for me. What my glasses do is help give me a long-term perspective of what's far away. So often, we get myopic in our vision. We get headline after headline, what CNN's putting on there, what Fox News is saying, or even what the internet says. Those headlines often become the farthest we can see. What Paul calls the Corinthians to here is a reframing of that, of putting on the glasses that say, here's the glasses of faith. And what do they see? They see that this is just a temporary time. Someday, COVID will be done. Someday, the 2020 election season won't seem so ominous. Someday, we'll be through this. But someday, Christ will come back and redeem his people. And Paul would have us live in that bigger story, remembering that that bigger story overarches whatever story we're living right now. And because we can live in that story, that there is a glorious hope awaiting for us, we can respond now with thanksgiving. At the end of verse 15, he says, as this grace pervades the world, it's going to result in more thanksgiving overflowing to the glory of God. Our response to the glorious hope awaiting us is thanksgiving, even in trials. And so this long-term perspective, this reframing, allows us to persevere because we get to see the bigger story, the real story, is God's work in the world. And we can then respond, not with the moaning, but with thanksgiving. Now, this is difficult. I'm not going to claim that I know how to do this. This past month, I've been struggling with sciatic nerve problems down the right side. And every morning I wake up and it's stiff and it's painful and I can hardly move. And I've been usually taking a lap around the neighborhood and every painful step, I just can't wait for that pain to go away. And oftentimes that's how we get when we're in pain. We just want it to go away. Just want it to go away. On some days, I grit out this This is the day the Lord has made. I haven't found myself giving a lot of thanks for this pain yet. But Paul would have us know that in the midst of our trials, we can still give thanks because we know that God will redeem us from whatever we are struggling with now. Someday I will have a resurrected body and that pain will not be shooting down my hip anymore. That will be a glorious day. And that's the kind of thanksgiving Paul invites his listeners into now. So we can give our all We can persevere now because of this bigger story. So Paul's shown two things to us. One, we should persevere because in the midst of our fragility, we'll discover God's power at work within us. Two, that the bigger story of what God's doing can bracket out and remind us that it's temporary. And finally, we'll see that God's work is internal. 
and it's not stopping during this time. The coronavirus has not put a hold on who God is and what he's doing. And God often does his best work when life seems discombobulated, when it seems out of sorts. God has not stopped transforming you and me into the image of Christ. Let's take a look now at verse 16. And Paul says this, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So Paul talks here about not losing heart, not growing discouraged, but persevering, staying the course through the end. And he can do so, he says, though we are outwardly wasting away. This is an allusion here to his physical body. As we grow older, we lose our capacities. Our muscles aren't as strong, our bones are weaker, our minds not as sharp. So even as all these physical capacities slowly drain away, Paul says something more beautiful is happening. And that is inwardly, the inside, we are being renewed day by day. A couple things I want to point out there. One, this is a passive verb. Paul talks about, about this being renewed. In the extant Greek literature, Paul is the only one to use the passive form of this verb. And I think that's theologically important. Because everywhere else when Paul talks about transformation, renewal, Paul most often uses the passive form. Which means this. This is not you transforming yourself. This is God at work in you. He is doing this work. We are recipients of his mysterious work. Second is that this is a present tense verb, which means that this is a, a long process. It's not just once and done. No, it's a process. And that also comes through with the addition of the day by day. That This is a daily occurrence that God slowly transforming it and working us into the image of Christ. So God has this desire. So whatever trials that God has put us into right now, you can be sure of this. Whatever frustrations you're feeling, you can be sure of this, that God is working inside to expose things that he wants to remove and to put new things in its place. I've discovered this with my own self. On one hand, I might be in a difficult conversation, and I've had a lot of conversations over the past couple months about race, about the coronavirus, about you name it. One time, God's calling me, hey, you need to show up. You need to state your view right now, even though I'd rather hide in the recesses. Other places where I felt like I want to come in and say my piece, God said, be quiet, just listen. Other times, I've come and actually preached sermons and invited you to think about unity first, and then I realized a few days later that when I'm in a conversation, I really just want someone to agree with me. Not so much in Christ, but rather, I want, the, I want our beliefs to be the same. And God's been exposing things in me. And I believe he's been exposing things in you because he wants to keep this process going. He wants to renew us. And then finally, I would just say this, this renewal can also be interpreted as, as a recreating. And I, I think that ties in better with the larger perspective of 2 Corinthians, that God's doing a work of new creation. The new heavens and the new earth are where we are destined for, and God is forming that person right now in what he's doing. He's shaving off of our, our attachments to this earth to make us fit for heaven. So that's the work that God is doing. And Paul ends in verses 17 and 18 by saying this, For our light and momentary troubles, think about that. Whatever, whatever you're going through right now, it could be frustration about the virus, frustration about kids going to school, it could be loss of routine, prognosis you didn't like, 
Whatever you're facing, Paul calls it a light and momentary trouble. And what are they doing? They are achieving for us an eternal glory. So Paul, again, by, by reframing, by recasting what's going on here, Paul's able to see that what God is doing is far outlasting, far more worthy than the struggles and hardships we faced here. And so instead of the moaning and groaning that we often resort to, the complaining, Paul calls us here to look at something that says that this far outweighs it all. God's glory, the eternal destiny to which he's called us, that is far more worthy. So he says in verse 18, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is, temp- is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul would have us live for what matters most. And I think in this time we have a choice. We have a choice to live in the realm of frustration up here where we're just frustrated that things aren't going our way. Or we can persevere and, and dive down to believe that God's at work in our hearts removing the things He needs to remove and putting in places where His Spirit's going to transform us. Don't let yourself get stuck at the frustrated level. Push in to the deeper level. Because God's work is about transforming you and me to be the image of Christ. I was a teenager when Bob the Tomato and Larry the Cucumber came out. You might know them as VeggieTales. They were very funny, and I remember when they first started being shown at youth group events, I thought, that's pretty cheesy. Those are kids' shows. Why would you want to watch them? And after a while, they caught on. I realized, you know what? They're pretty silly. I kind of like VeggieTales. What I didn't know is that in the midst of me watching them, God was taking the owner, Phil Vischer, on a journey. Phil had met with success. He didn't expect the first video to go so well. It did. And he started hiring people to expand his company. And they wanted to take it in certain directions. And so he started expanding it probably too fast. And then in the midst of all that, a lawsuit came. And they actually forced the parent company of VeggieTales into bankruptcy. And there went Phil's dreams. Everything he'd been trying to create, God ripped from him. And so then he woke up a couple days later saying, okay, God, what's the next big thing? I'm ready. But nothing came. And it went on for a long time. And he said that the feeling, the desire to create kept sinking lower and lower until finally it was just gone. A few days after reaching that point, he woke up early. He had a story in his head. He went quick. He wrote it out. And his wife, when she woke up, he gave it to her and she read it and cried. God gave him something back. And to hear Phil describe what changed, it's really interesting because it seems so much like God's hand, just as Paul's talking here. Because what changed was this. He says one thing is before he was driven to achieve, driven to success, he created VeggieTales to feel like he was getting somewhere. And instead, what he was creating from was his devotional life. What he'd read in Scripture suddenly became a story that he wanted to tell. Another difference was this, that when he was doing VeggieTales, he was driven by anxiety. There was always the question, can can I make another success? Can I keep people's attention? So he was driven by this anxiety to keep producing because he was caught in this big wheel to make sure it all worked. Instead, he says he now creates from freedom. No need to perform. Well, that's a big transformation. If you've seen things like what's in the Bible, which, by the way, you can access all these on Right Now Media. I encourage you to let your kids watch some of these. 
If you've seen some of the newer things that Phil has produced, those come from this new place of freedom that he's discovered. And just like Phil, God is at work renewing you and me, stripping out the places where we've tried to control life for our own good, try to make it about us. And he wants us to now refocus our lives to be about Jesus Christ, about the message that should bookend our lives, to live in that fully, to give up our control to our Savior, to say, I am yours. God calls you and me to that place. And so in this era of the virus, and I'm not sure where you are today, perhaps you're still frustrated, perhaps you're happy. I don't know how you're responding, but would you stop right now and ask God, Lord, what are you taking away and what do you want to bring? What new thing are you trying to create in me so that I mirror Jesus Christ? I invite you to pray that prayer this day and ask him, what mysterious work is he doing in your heart? Let's pray. Father, you've called us to live during this time. And we don't yet know how it will end. But we pray that your power that has sustained Paul would sustain us. We pray that your mysterious work that has transformed others before us would transform our own hearts to be more like Christ. Lord, help us know what you're asking us to give up and what to receive. That we would push into this time to know how the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ should motivate our lives now. May we rest in your arms, in Jesus' name. Amen.